Well, thank you, Spence, for that nice introduction. I um, actually wasn't planning to speak. I got called by Leslie about half an hour ago. I was actually, to be honest, sound asleep and rushed down here to give my talk on stress, so the irony was not lost on me. Um, what I want to talk about really is the underlying cause of suffering and focusing on physical heart disease as an example of how powerful these approaches can be. But I, I really believe that all healing, whether it's personal healing or planetary healing, is spiritual. And these are things we really don't talk much about, certainly in our medical training. And, I, and I'll talk about why that is. But the idea is that if you don't treat the underlying causes of a problem, of any problem, say heart disease, if you just turn off, if you just mop up the floor without also turning off the faucet, then the same problem tends to come back again, or you get a new set of problems or side effects that you hadn't counted on, or you have painful choices on a health policy level. Now, <clears throat> pardon me, the, the um, causes of heart disease, let's say, are primarily lifestyle-related, as Dr. Blumenthal, Susan Blumenthal, talked about a couple of days ago. They include things like diet, stress management, exercise, smoking, uh, support groups, and vitamins and supplements. When most people think about my work, they think about diet. It's gotten to a point I can't go out to dinner without someone either apologizing for what they're eating or commenting on what I'm eating. But I don't want to talk about diet today, except uh, we did, I like this cartoon that says, but my only consolation is that by eating us, they're killing themselves. <clears throat> but I want to just show that on a physical level that although we tend to think of advances in medicine as being a new drug or a laser or something really high-tech and expensive, that these simple choices like what we eat and how we respond to stress and so on can actually affect the underlying disease process. And what we did in our studies over the last 25 years is we took men and women who had really severe heart disease and found that they could actually not only slow it but actually reverse the progression. Ironically, using these very expensive, state-of-the-art, high-tech diagnostic technology to prove how powerful these very simple and ancient and low-cost interventions can be. And on the upper left, you see an, a frame from an X-ray movie called an angiogram showing where the narrowing is. And a year later, on the right, that narrowing is less clogged. Uh, at the bottom is what's called a PET scan, which measures blood flow to the heart. And blue and black means no blood flow. And, and orange and white is maximal blood flow. So you can see on the bottom left that blue and black area is a big part of the heart not getting any blood, and a year later it's 300% better. This is a guy who literally couldn't walk across the street without getting severe angina or chest pain. Within a month was pain-free, within a year was climbing 130 floors a day on a Stairmaster. That's not unusual when people make these kinds of simple changes. Overall, the blockages in the arteries got worse and worse, and the people who were making more moderate changes and actually got better and better in the group making more intensive changes. We even have several patients who were candidates for heart transplants who, while waiting for a donor, because it takes about a year to find a donor, and half the people die before they can find one, said, well, what the hell, well, let me give this a try. And all seven of them improved so much that they no longer needed a heart transplant. We're about to begin a larger study of that now. Just to look on the left, that green and blue area, uh, a month, excuse me, a year later is normal. And uh, it just, it's kind of the ultimate high-tech, low-tech juxtaposition, like what's the more radical intervention, a heart transplant or eating vegetables and meditating? More recently, we did a study in collaboration with Sloan Kettering to see whether we could reverse the progression of prostate cancer. And we took men and women who had, excuse me, men who had severe uh, prostate cancer, sorry. <laughs> Although I will say if it's true for prostate cancer, it is almost certainly true for breast cancer as well. And what we found is that uh, these were people who had decided not to be treated conventionally, half of whom made these same kinds of diet and lifestyle changes and half of whom didn't. And PSA, which is a marker for prostate cancer, improved in the group who made intensive changes and got worse in the control group. 
we did MRI and spectroscopy scans, and that red area is the prostate tumor, and you can see a year later it's smaller. So we're now not only finding that this can reverse heart disease, but also prostate cancer, and by extension, uh, likely breast cancer. But that's not really what I find the most interesting about this work. What I find most interesting are the psychosocial, the emotional, and the spiritual dimensions. Study after study have shown that people who are lonely and depressed are many times more likely to get sick and die prematurely, in part because you're more likely to smoke and overeat and drink too much and work too hard when you're depressed. Um, this cartoon says I give smokers a discount because there's not as much to tell. Um, so people are more likely to smoke. I've heard patients say things like, I've got 20 friends in this package of cigarettes and they're always there for me and nobody else is. But you know, people say, I don't think I could change my lifestyle, it's too hard. And yet people make changes in lifestyle every day. This is my son Lucas, he's 18 months old. And uh, how many of you have at least one child? Raise your hand, I'm just curious. Was that a big change in your lifestyle? You know, most people say, yeah, it was huge. And yet people do it every day because they say it's meaningful. And so I found that people are not afraid to make big changes if they think the benefits are big enough. Now we can measure <coughs> arteriograms and prostate cancer, but often the most meaningful changes are ones that are more difficult to measure. And the idea that anything that promotes loneliness and isolation is more likely to cause you to get sick and die prematurely, whether on an individual level or on a planetary level. This is a study where they took men and women who were about to have open heart surgery, like bypass operation, and they asked them two simple questions. Are you a member of a group of people that get together on a regular basis, yes or no? And are, do you draw strength from your religious faith? And those that said no to both questions, 21% were dead just six months after surgery compared to only 3% who said yes, a seven-fold difference in mortality. Now, in the interest of time, I'm just gonna skip through and just show you one more, which is that people who are depressed uh, six months after a heart attack, 18% are dead compared to only 3% who aren't depressed. So these are things that not only affect the quality of life, they affect the quantity of life, they affect our survival. They affect immune function. People are more depressed or more likely to get sick and die prematurely. Even people who are HIV positive who are depressed are double the likelihood of developing AIDS and dying. Now we can change that. This is a study from Stanford where they took women with metastatic breast cancer, gave them a support group for an, uh, a year. Five years later, they lived twice as long as those that didn't have the support group. And the last slide, I was given a talk it's actually medical and oncology grand rounds with Swami Satchidananda, from whom I've studied yoga for many years. And someone said, hey, Swami, what's the difference between illness and wellness? And he went up on the board and he wrote the word illness and circled the letter I and wrote the word wellness and circled the letter we. And it's been my experience that people who really understand things at a deep level can simplify them to the point where they almost sound simplistic until you understand the truth that's behind it. And, and to me, this is really a summary of what I want to focus on, which is that you know, the first step, as Mr. Horta said in the last uh, lecture, is to see people as, to, as different than you, to demonize them. And to me, what healing really is about is the process of making whole. The word healing comes from the root to make whole. And all spiritual practices, you know, they're often used to, make, to see people as different than you, so that you can then demonize them, and once you see them as different, you can do really bad things to them, whether they're Protestants and the Catholics here in Ireland, or the Jews and the Palestinians in the, in, in the Middle East, or, you, I mean, you know, I don't have to give you examples. The first step is to see someone as different, and then you can do bad things to them. This is something that uh, President Clinton and Bono talked about on the first evening. But the point of all spiritual practices the ancient swamis and rabbis and priests and monks and nuns didn't discover these techniques to simply help them unclog their arteries or make their prostate tumors smaller. These are really, or manage stress better, although they can help you do all those things. 
These are really powerful tools for transformation. They quiet down your mind and body enough so you experience more of an inner sense of peace and well-being. But more than that, they give you a transcendent vision. They give you what you might call a double vision. That on one level, we are separate. We are different. But on another level, we're part of something larger that connects us all, whatever religious or secular context you put that experience in. And when we can see the world in that way, then it just logically follows that we treat each other a lot better. Because if we can't demonize people, if we see people as ourselves in another form, then all of the biblical and spiritual precepts become self-evident. So let me stop here for a moment. I just wanted to make sure we had time for a few questions, if there are any. Thank you. Hi, I'm Murray McCutcheon, a Canadian studying at Oxford. I just wondered if there were um, any challenges you faced in the medical establishment um, with your research. <laughs> I was giving a talk in Texas, and someone said, wow, this is really pioneering research. And I said, they said, you know how we tell pioneers here in Texas? I said, no. They said, by the arrows in their backs. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, when you're doing something that's never been done before, you take a lot of flack for it. It's hard to get funding for studies like this because the, the major government agencies and foundations say it's impossible to reverse heart disease. It's impossible to reverse prostate cancer. Why should we waste our money on it? And so without the funding, you can't show that something's feasible. And since they don't think it's feasible, they don't want to fund it. So we actually kind of raised the money as we went along any way we could from different individuals. It was hard to get it published. It's held to a higher standard when you're trying to do something that's never been done. But that's part of the fun. And so all of you are so gifted, and it's just so wonderful to be here. And I would just say to you, yeah, it's hard to when you do something that's never been done. But that's what makes it so fun and so meaningful. And knowing that the work is helping so many people is what makes it worthwhile. So again, I want to just thank all of you for the opportunity to be here today, and the Reynolds in particular.